I really hope that people listening realize that having imagination is already resistant. Thinking about visions outside of the system is resistant. So if you're doing that, you're already on the right path. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Janeri. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by To Be Determined, a career services firm that provides coaching for individuals and organizations. Do you ever feel like you're waiting for your life to happen? Wondering if you can find fulfillment in your work or if you should just settle? To Be Determined can help you answer those important questions. Whether you're looking for guidance on making a career change, conducting an effective job search, dealing with a job loss, or maximizing your work-life success and satisfaction, To Be Determined can help you find work aligned with your values. As a socially conscious firm, they welcome the opportunity to support marginalized people with empathy, understanding, and a passion to see their clients succeed on their own terms. To Be Determined offers a complimentary consultation to understand your needs and see how they might help. For anyone looking for work with meaning and purpose, with a payoff that's more than a paycheck, go to the Hey Change podcast show notes for details on taking the next step. After all, your future is still to be determined. So be determined. We had the privilege of speaking with a visionary of our time. Teju Adisa Farrar is a Jamaican-American geographer, researcher, writer, and poet from Oakland, California. Her interdisciplinary work focuses on connecting the dots between environmental, social, cultural, and ecological issues. She has lived in seven different countries, and Teju's transnational perspective allows her to advocate and speak about environmental and climate justice so that we can build alternative futures. She has worked with diverse organizations like Earth Justice, the Slow Factory, and the United States Embassy of Botswana. She's spoken at several colleges, including Princeton University and the Rhode Island School of Design. Teju currently chairs the Equity Committee for Fibershed's Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative and works as an independent consultant. We covered so many things in this conversation with Teju, and you are about to learn a lot. For example, what is eco-apartheid, and how can we view ourselves as part of an ecosystem and focus on small-scale community growth to help transition to a post-capitalist world? Teshu is just filled with so much knowledge, but also inspiration, and she really understands what we can all do to come together and co-create a new kind of world. Are you ready to envision a completely new future where we live in harmony with the planet and each other? Let's dive right in. This is Teshu Adisa Farrar. So we want to head right into the juicy topic. Intersectional environmentalism kind of became a trendy word in 2020, and rightfully so. But you're someone who's been writing about this for many years. So we wanted to just hear your version of this. Like, what is intersectional environmentalism? And more importantly, why should we know about this and care about this? Mm -hmm. So first, I want to start with just talking about intersectionality, which was a term coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, At the time, she was a legal scholar and she was trying to find a way to have cases in court judged not only based on sex or race, but recognizing that women of color have issues of discrimination that are based not only on sex and not only on race, but are intersectional. And actually that for women of color, you can't separate your race from your sex. So she initially coined this term as sort of a legal framework to understand the intersectional nature of our identities. And for some reason over the past decade, it has sort of become popular in mainstream conversations conversations about everything. And I think a little bit debased and oversimplified to just mean that we have many different sides of us. But really what she was talking about is how the different identities that we have intersect with systems of power and authority. 
And so intersectional environmentalism is this idea that those of us who experience our environment and are also impacted by myriad different oppressions, racial oppression, um, sexual identity oppression, class oppression, cannot separate those systems from our relationship to our environment. And in fact, our environment and the way that we experience it is very much predicated upon all of our different identities. And so it's an incomplete conversation to talk about environmentalism without talking about all the social and political systems that impact why our environment is worse for some people and why certain people don't have access to resources are living in degraded areas, um, or even the conversation around climate change and who contributes the most to climate change. So the idea of intersectional environmentalism and the resurgence of it is really about talking about the environment in a way that includes the social, political, and cultural aspects, which really is um, you know, necessary for humans because we're not separate from our environment. And the way that we have experienced society is by sort of manipulating the social and political world to control our environment. So it's about trying to bring all of this into the conversation. So in terms of um, advocacy, you have been advocating for a long time. When did you realize that this was a path that you wanted to be on? I think when I was 17, um, I had a job with an organization called Grind for the Green, which was started by Zakia Harris, who's an amazing powerhouse person. And the idea of Grind for the Green was to bring youth of color from the margins to the center of the environmental movement, specifically in the Bay Area. I grew up in a neighborhood called West Oakland. And at the time, um, children in West Oakland had asthma rates eight times higher than children anywhere else in Oakland because West Oakland is situated between three major highways and adjacent to the Port of Oakland where there's a lot of smog. It also was a historically black neighborhood. And so it was one of the only neighborhoods real estate agents showed my parents a house in. So although they were college educated and worked at universities, we still experienced this environmental racism because we were black. So I've lived with asthma my whole life. My brother has asthma. And it occurred to me that the pollution and all of this industry was near West Oakland or that West Oakland became this historically black area because it was near this industry and near this pollution. And also in these conversations about the environmental movement, I was not hearing these things being talked about. Simultaneously while working at that nonprofit, I was also doing an internship at Greenpeace and they had me working on a polar bears campaign. And I was like, this is really great and important, but also literally 10 minutes down the street, there is mass amounts of pollution that also contribute to global warming. So if we save the polar bears and West Oakland is still under a toxic smog cloud, then we're actually not gonna achieve environmental justice. And so I noticed from the beginning this between talking about the environmental movement and talking about environmental justice. And I didn't understand that separation. So it occurred to me that there needed to be more voices like mine who are talking about these intersections and particularly the experiences of Black people who are dealing with a myriad um, environmental issues. So I think of gentrification as an environmental issue. I think of racism as an environmental issue. I believe that all racism is environmental because we can't separate ourselves from the environments that have been created around us. So I wanted to think about on an urban scale what it meant to include and center Black people in conversations about how our cities are made, how our environments are made, who has access, and the different barriers to access despite having social capital or resources or education. So I think I think that work really started there. And over time, it morphed and developed. And I did different types of things that were somehow related to this idea of our environment and our relationship to it in Black geographies. And um, in the last few years, maybe in the last five years, I've become particularly sensitive to climate change because it's severely affecting Jamaica. And um, I'm Jamaican American, my mom lives in Jamaica. And the last two times I was there, there were tsunami warnings, there was an earthquake, there's been 
flooding and all of this is because of climate change and island ecosystems are especially sensitive because they're surrounded by water. So there's sea level rise, there's increasing acidity in the water. Of course, tourism impacts the reef. So again, in this conversation about climate change, we were debating it in the US as policies and whether it exists or not. But in Jamaica, I was like, not only does it exist, it's raging and it is impacting poor Jamaicans more so than anyone else. And we need to talk about this. So I've sort of gotten more interested in climate change over the past five years because how I see it affecting Jamaica and, you know, um, populations in Africa and Latin America, even though in the US and Europe, we have this luxury of talking about it as an idea rather than a, a current reality. And I think what's important to note as well, and also important to remember as anyone who might be listening who is a climate advocate or wants to be more of an, an activist in this field, it, it's so important that we, like just what you described, where we need to stop making it like this idea or like something that's going to happen in the future or like it's about saving polar bears. This is something that's happening right now. It's actually much closer to us than we might even know. So by making it intersectional or like talking about it in those terms, you invite for more conversations in all fields, right? It's much easier to engage people if you can say, hey, this is how climate change is affecting our local community. This is how it's affecting our area. This is how it's affecting your neighbor, right? So like by bringing in these conversations, it's much easier to spark climate action um, because it feels closer. It feels more relatable. It feels more urgent and more personal. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. I think it's just something that we, I kind of want to just like, you know, uh, pin down. Also, you, you mentioned it briefly, but can you explain to us a little bit more in detail what eco-apartheid is and what that means? Yeah, so I actually don't know who coined the term eco-apartheid, so I apologize for that gap in my knowledge, but there's a couple of different definitions that I ascribe to, one of which is just the violent separation of people from nature, which in some cases began with colonialism in the Americas and in on the continent of Africa as well, um, making people's relationship to the environment about producing profit rather than subsistence and living from or alongside nature. So I think that's a general definition that just separation of humans from nature, which essentially is separating from us from ourselves because we are a part of nature. And then the other definition, which is used more popularly now is this idea that a wealthy few will have access to resources, reusable energy, renewable energy, all kinds of um, things that we need to survive as the climate crisis gets worse. And then mass amounts of the population will be living in degraded environments, living in polluted environments, living on toxic sites without access to clean water, without access to renewable energy. And in some cases, I do believe we're living in a sort of eco-apartheid now. Not only do people in Flint not have water and have not had clean water for several years, which is a mostly black working class place. Also right now in Jackson, Mississippi, a mostly black uh, city is experiencing um, not having access to water. And even as we think about building the border wall um, or that whole shenanigan with Trump, there were so many ecological and spiritual issues with trying to build a wall between this land that was not previously divided with a material border. And so not only were they thinking about species who ha whose habitat was going to be lost, they were thinking about indigenous people whose spiritual lands were going to be bulldozed through. Um, they're thinking about like just the fissure between um, our relationships in these countries. And so the idea of eco-apartheid, again, as being something in the future, I think is not necessarily true. I think we are living in a form of eco-apartheid now where certain people have access to resources and renewable types of things and other people do not have that access currently. And that could be and may as well be exasperated if we don't make a change right now. I just recently heard this concept of how wrong it is that we think that by, by definition of being rich means that we can buy nature, you know, like we can own peace, like not just piece of land, but like the atmosphere. Like if you make a certain amount of money, you can fly a jet and like travel and do all these things, but like you're stealing atmosphere and clean air from other people. It's like, it's a natural resource that can be restored. And like, I think, 
eco-apartheid, if I understand it correctly, is like this whole like concept of like, by, you know, it's, it's a divide between who gets to have what when it comes to something that should initially be shared equally between all of us. So yeah, when you start thinking about it that way, it's like, wow, really, who am I to own land? Like, just because right. I bought this piece of land, now I can do whatever I want with this land. Like, it's not my land, you know, it's like, yeah, anyway. Or air or privatizing water, all of yeah. those crazy in some you know, in Jamaica, there's a lot of private beaches because there are hotels on those beaches. And it's like, how can you own the edge of an island? It seems so strange, but really the colonial ideology that I talk about a lot is about the commodification of nature. So making these things that occur naturally for millions of years of systems working together to make them a commodity or object that can be bought and sold on the global market, which automatically means that people who live in these places are going to be displaced. And those of us who need access to these things will not have it if we don't have money, even though these are not things that should be considered property at all. Yeah, it's so crazy to feel like, I mean, it's it's something that for me, like I'm sort of new to this space, to environmentalism in general and intersectional environmentalism. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of learning, but just the realization of like, this is not a dystopian future that we're talking about. This is literally happening right now. And the cultural narrative that we pass down is certainly the colonialism, you know, view of we can own anything, we can own everything. And rather than um, I recently became familiar with animism is like where you see like God energy or source energy, however you want to frame it in everything. And just being introduced to that concept for me personally has just really changed my relationship with everything. Like I already feel quite sensitive to animals, to plants, to people, to everything around us. And to, you know, Andres has helped me to be more mindful about, you know, my consumption, my, my practice as a human <laughs> on this planet. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a big realization to come to, I think for a lot of us that the, the framework that we have been taught to think out of, is not by no means the best one and we can let it go and we can have a new vision for the future. We can do things differently. Um, I have a quote from one of your uh, essays. You, you wrote an article on Medium. I, if, if it's okay, if I'll, I'll, I'll quote it back to you. Um, you, I believe were quoting um, Vandana Shiva and she's the author of the book, Soil Nut Oil. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, the quote that I really stuck out for me was um, consumer democracy is the gasoline for the bulldozer of globalization. It is a pseudo democracy associated with economic dictatorship. It decertifies the soil of real democracy. Authentic democracy like plants grows from the ground up. This was a big juicy concept for me that I'm still digesting and gaining nourishment from. Um, could you go a little deeper into that? Mm -hmm. First of all, I love Dr. Vandana Shiva. She is an Indian activist climate powerhouse, and I think she is amazing. So I learn a lot from her about how to articulate these connections and some of the places where we need to do a lot of work. And one of them is on this idea of consumerism and so much of the way we talk about climate change and environmental activism is still centered in consuming more when we actually need to consume less. There's this idea that we can buy our way out of the climate crisis if we just buy enough bamboo toothbrushes. And that's absolutely not true. And we need to really reframe this idea of a consumer culture. So this idea of consumer democracy is this belief that we have choices in a democratic society when really our choices are limited. So when we go to the store, we have 500 types of marinara sauce to choose from, but we don't actually have that many different healthcare systems to choose from. We don't have a lot of options about the products we buy and whether or not they're wrapped in plastic. So there's this idea of choice being widespread throughout the US as a democratic principle, but the types of choices we have are not systemic or based on the root causes, they're sort of superficial. You could have five different types of water, but they're all private water. You can't have public water. So that's not really a choice. So 
what she's talking about is moving from this idea of participating in democracy through consumer choices and participating in democracy through grassroots organizing and having more access to political choices. And so in the context of India, in the context of Jamaica, in the context of Brazil, some of the ways that US imperialism shows up is by telling people they need to have more choices in what they consume rather than honoring recognizing, celebrating that consuming less and consuming in more intentional and reusable ways is actually the way to go and having more options about how you control and manage your energy, how you control and manage your food and water access is really uh, democratic at heart. And so we should stop focusing on how do we consume more or give access to people to consume more rather than we should focus less on that and more on how we can get people to authentically engage with political and social decisions that impact their life and their environment um, beyond just different brand names or labels that we can choose at a store. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that what we need for climate action as a systemic change is choice architecture. And basically, you know, it's, and I think it goes so well with what you're saying. We, we try to put it on the consumer to like, you can buy better, you can do better. But like you said, it's just fueling buying more. And maybe I don't want to buy more. I want to help by just being and having the things I already have. Obviously, there are things you have to buy frequently, like food and stuff. And so that's a really easy way to vote for your dollar. But like, how do we design society where the right choices are the easy ones? You know, mm -hmm. like it's it the affordable ones. And the affordable ones, it shouldn't be the, like the, the cheapest food is the crappy food that kills people on the planet. And it should be tons of plastic. <laughs> exactly. It's like it should be like that comes from the local farmer who's being, you know, supported for his work or her work. And it should be where like you don't ha you shouldn't have to like ask. I mean, OK, there's actually a real example that kind of drove me crazy. We were just on the road the other week and we had to stop at Starbucks because we need a coffee because that's, you know, <laughs> part of human survival. Anyways, uh, COVID and everything, you have to kind of sometimes just be like, all right, they're not going to take my, my mug. So I'll just deal with a paper cup. And then I ordered oatmeal and I said, don't give me utensils. Like, I really don't need them. I don't need a lid, nothing. Like, it's fine. Like, I have my own in the car. And this girl comes up, like, she comes back to me. She said, and she was new too. She's like, hey, I'm sorry. Like, I was told I have to give them to you just in case. And I'm like, I haven't touched them yet. Can you take them back? And I'm like, how is it where, like, I specifically asked them to not give me plastic utensils and still they feel like they have to? For, for what? You know, like, the worst thing that could happen is that I can't eat my oatmeal shame on me, you know, but like, it's not like someone's going to die from it, you know, so I think it's just, it's crazy how we created this system where like, that's the um, normal choice. And not only, you know, is it, is it in our face, like we should, we should have to ask for it, like, I specifically need you to give me plastic utensils. That's an easy way to do it, right? Um, I'm get, going on a tantrum here now. But like, I think it's, it's just, for anyone who's listening, it might feel like, you know, I need to make better choices and me need to do this and that. But like, I think the best way you can really start working towards systemic change is, like you said, supporting grassroots movements, being more um, active in your local um, politics and just kind of learning more about like what's going on, how can I support me my vote and start creating those systems where, you know, it's, it's beneficial for everyone, including the planet, including people, um, including uh, marginalized communities that what we do buy is supporting everyone. And also thinking about just lobbying and the fact that petrochemical companies who make products out of oil, like plastic, are lobbying the government to make sure that things are wrapped in plastic, to make sure that you give people utensils. And so we have this idea that it's a choice whether or not we take utensils from Starbucks, but actually there are corporations who have been lobbying to make sure that plastic remains a part of our culture and that we can't ask to not have it because that's part of the profit-making system that we've created, which is about extracting carbon from the environment, turning it into plastics, and then pretending like we have a choice on whether or not we take them. So I think part of that understanding about making choices when you're buying things is recognizing that this is connected to larger political systems about resource extraction, natural resource extraction, and what products we have access to. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's about thinking upstream that here we are playing the consumer and it feels kind of like, like, I feel like a puppet or a pawn 
Mm -hmm. feeling like I have all these choices in the grocery store, the example you gave, you know, a million marinara sauces that you can choose from, as opposed to like, it drives me crazy that, you know, I can go into the grocery store and so much of the food that's in there is actually not healthy for anybody. Um, And I also recognize there's privilege with being able to have access to grocery stores where you have, you know, the produce, at least you have produce around the outside of the the store that you can get healthy food. So um, it's about the upstream choices that we can make as citizens to, to view ourselves as citizens, not consumers, is a big shift. One question that I have for you, Teju, is do you have a vision for the future? Do you hold like this vision that you're striving for? Is it more just like principles of things that is like a North Star for you? Or do you have like a whole vision of what the world might look like? Because I, if you do, I want in. <laughs> I don't know if I have one vision. I definitely invoke the North Star framework a lot, just thinking about my ancestors who in the dark cover of the night could not see in front of them or behind them, but use the North Star as the direction, as the right direction towards freedom. And so I'm also hesitant to give my vision because I believe we need many visions. I'm really a pluralist. I don't think there's one way to save the environment. I think there are multiple ways. I think we need community gardens. I think we need new policy and legislation. I think we need um, better education that talks about us as being part of ecosystems. I think we need to move away from any monocultural ideas, one spirit, one God, one crop, Anything that is monocultural, I think, is devastating for nature because nature is so based on diversity and having multiple types of things work and feed and conflict and symbiosis with each other. If we look to nature, it's not that everything is beautiful and fine. There is conflict, but ultimately everyone is working towards continuity. And we've created a system where We are limiting continuity, not only for ourselves, but also for other species. So in my vision, there is bioregions, there is uh, community-based initiatives, there is collective management of land and collective management of electricity, there's access to Wi-Fi that's not owned by a private company or like Facebook. There is not a company that controls ports and supply chains the way that Amazon does. That would not exist in my my vision. Um, Oil would not be the main source of energy in my vision. Coal would not be the main source of energy. I'm looking to wind. I'm looking to solar. I'm looking to water. I'm looking to how we can consume energy less and feed each other more. I'm thinking about um, giving more trust to youth Uh, who are immediately thinking about their futures and about what matters if they don't have a planet, what actually matters and what matters is the planet. So my vision is really just anyone who wants to create a world that is significantly different and transformed from the world that we think about right now, and maybe doesn't necessarily go back to a time before colonialism, because I don't believe that is possible, but tries to find ways that indigenous people and native communities and bush communities and people in the Amazon have been consuming less and living lifestyles that are more aligned with small scale and community growth rather than large scale and continual growth. So I try to I try to be clear that I think there is no one vision, that actually there's multiple visions. And as long as we have this North Star of a planet that is still a planet that is healthy, where we all have access to green space and healthy food, and we don't have to spend all of our time doing things that are about making profit because we have what we need. So we don't need profit to feed ourselves. If that is part of a vision that you have, or if that's one of your goals, or if you think there's one specific way to do that or another specific way, I welcome all of that into my vision. And so what I'm trying to do right now is just broaden my vision. One of the projects I work on is um, Fiber Shed's regional manufacturing initiative. And the idea is to create fiber and garments from seed to sew in a 150 mile radius 
of this like this northern California bioregion to create products, knowing that everything we need to create natural fibers we have right now. And if we do it on a small regional scale, then we could use climate beneficial agriculture. We could have pathways to teaching people how to do permaculture, teaching people how to weave and sew in ways that don't necessarily use um, mass machines for every part of the process where you can not have to go too far to get those products. Um, so that's one of the ways that I think about this vision of an ecological equitable future, but there are so many. It's, it's so crazy because when you when you explain that, sorry, Robin, um, I, I think, um, first of all, it's like, wow, we can, you know, produce from 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 seed to to finish product within what this, whatever it is, like 100 miles radius. A little bit more than that, okay. but, but still, you know, like a small like area, 150 miles to 200 miles versus literally thousands of miles. Right. And first you're like, wow, you can do that. And then you're like, the only reason I think that way is because we're so used to globalization you know, like it used to be a time where like that was the only choice, you know, like you didn't meet people ever who was further away than that. So I think it's just like, you know, we don't always have to keep going forward. Like how can we stop, start going backwards and like remembering how we used to do things that might've actually been even better because we were less stressed and we had more time to spend with family and, and our communities. And something else I'm thinking of as you're talking is Charles Eisenstein's book, uh, Climate, A New Story. I'm not sure if you read it. <laughs> It's beautiful. He really speaks on, you know, the importance of not looking at climate change as this one complicated issue we need to fix because it's so complex. And ultimately, by thinking that way, we're missing such a big part of the picture. and We actually might do more harm than good. It's not just about like, OK, now we found this one solution. It's, we just need to transfer all our energy to solar and we're good. You know, it's like it's more than that. Right. Like, well, if we, in doing so, wipe out all the ecosystems where we put up the solar panels, then that's not good, you know? And it's not just about um, transitioning to green energy, it's about restoring and, and making sure that we keep whatever nature we have still around. It's about um, empowering communities. It's, it's about so many things. And I think a way that I've learned to think about climate action is to not get overwhelmed because there's not, it, it's not about figuring out this one thing that we can do and like, okay, now we've got it, like we're good. No, it's actually about being more present and being more just aware and slowing down and being more mindful of like, what are the things I'm doing? What can I do differently? How can I, like, what are some communities around me that I can help support? So I think just, I wanted to kind of have that takeaway of like, there is not one thing, it's not one vision. It's so many different visions. And I think, the beauty in that is like, we can actually take a chill pill and be like, okay, you know, I don't have to figure this out because first of all, there's nothing to figure out. Once you start to slow down, you're like, maybe I already have the answer. Like you just start looking at nature, like nature is pretty good on its own. You know, <laughs> I just need to like watch and learn and like be part of it again. So yeah, I think, I think that's such a beautiful reminder. And having moments to like, imagine all the different possibilities. And I think one of the things about environmental capitalism and I think neoliberal capitalism is general in general is that it limits our imagination. We are like, no other system works. There has been nothing else. And I'm like, literally guys, we've only been here <laughs> 300 years. The earth has been here for 4.5 billion. Humans have been here for maybe 20,000 years. Like 300 years is not much. We can, we can fix that in two generations. Yes, generations, which sounds long, but knowing that to get to this point, it has been 300 years of natural resource extraction and devastation. That means in another 300 years, we could completely transform it. So what I hope that people can do is to broaden their imagination and not let capitalism and consumer culture specifically make us feel like we don't have options or get overwhelmed by having to choose the right vision. This idea that there is one vision is one of the ways that the U.S. Uh, in particular slows down policy and advocacy. Well, we need to have the right solution. And if we don't, we can't do anything. Actually, we need to have many solutions and we need to be doing all of those. So if you're doing one or two things, if you want to be zero waste, great. If you want to av advocate and lobby, great. If you want to create a community garden, great. If you want to train people on how to be climate beneficial, great. If you want a revolution, also, great. That's that's all part of it. To me, the, the revolution is not one moment. It's a series of moments. It's a series of generations taking up this fight again and again and again and imagining things that 
don't exist. I mean, could you imagine my ancestors who were enslaved literally being born into slavery and saying, I'm working towards a world where my child will be born into freedom? For 300 years, that was not an option. And they literally dreamed it up and used the North Star and all of the nature that was surrounding them as a way to get towards this vision. And so that really motivates me to maintain my imagination that it is something that my ancestors did so I could be here. So the least I could do is imagine, right? The least I could do is see beyond this current moment now to think about what would I like in an ideal situation? What would allow my kids, my grandkids to be the most free? That's what I'm going towards. And if I have to fight my whole life for it, that's what I'm going to do, because that's what my parents did and my grandparents. And so I really hope that, you know, people listening realize that having imagination is already resistant. Thinking about visions outside of the system is resistant. So if you're doing that, you're already on the right path. This is just so inspiring. I'm like taking so many notes while you talk because it's so it's so, um, I'll just say from my own personal experience, it's been very scary kind of waking up to the realization of the challenges that we face. I was certainly in my own bubble, my own fishbowl, really just not happy to be perfectly honest with you, you know, partying, drinking too much, not really involved in anything meaningful in my life and having a child change everything, realizing like, I really need to think about the world and the future. And then I'm um, starting to, uh, create a circle around me, you know, entries is a big part of that of people who are very intentional and mindful about what they do with their time and their, their actions. But I've always felt this like, uh, friction with the way that I was living my life as a young person. And that, you know, when you, you mentioned earlier to view ourselves as part of ecosystems, it's such a simple concept, but it's such a profound concept of, that the just the ways that we have disconnected ourselves from the land and that we are a part of nature, not a part of nature. I love that quote as well. I think that was David Attenborough maybe. Um, but just that we really, the things that bring joy and happiness and meaning in our lives is actually very simple. And it has, it, it has so much to do with just being in our own communities and having everybody be safe, having safety, having access to the, the, the necessities of food and water, clean air, some time in nature, some time to do meaningful work towards our communities. It's such a simple thing. And yet we've created this really complex, scary system to, it feels like, to keep people blind to really how simple life actually could be. Like life could be so simple and, and actually full of ease. And we've created a whole complex system to keep certain people in power and the rest of us in different layers of oppression. So I don't really have a question for following that. I think I mean, that's, like that's really important. And I, you know, I, I love that idea that life could be so simple because it's so complex right now, as you say, but I'm just thinking a lot about luxury because one of the things with being an anti-capitalist, especially as someone who identifies as black is that because we have been excluded from building wealth, there is this incentive that in order to transcend some of the issues of racism, you need to have money. And so when you try to tell people that accumulating wealth is not the way to liberation, it's really hard because there are material needs right now that are eminent that we need to deal with right now. And so I've been thinking about how do we reframe this idea of luxury? For example, I use the example of Queen Bee, Beyonce. I believe a couple of years ago, she started like a vegan food service, something where people could get fresh, healthy, vegan food. And it was like Beyonce, this celebrity, this like amazing, expensive vegan food service. And I was like, could you imagine thinking that the only way to experience fresh produce is through a luxury food service, but actually having access to fresh food is a luxury in and of itself. It doesn't need to be packaged and branded by Beyonce for it to be seen as a luxury. All of these celebrities jetting off in the middle of the pandemic, where are they going to nature, to natural places? So right now we've organized society around 
money being the key to have these luxuries, but actually most of the things we consider luxuries are natural. They are literally from the earth. So what if we could all have fresh produce without having to go through a brand um, or some kind of consumer culture? What if we all could go to nature and feel safe in nature and feel safe underneath the stars or in the woods? Like that is really luxury. I go out to my front yard and pick kale. And every time I do that, I'm like, this is such a blessing. I have this privilege. I'm so grateful. But what if everyone could just go to their garden and have food there that they can eat that they don't have to buy? That is a luxury. So even as we think about a post-capitalist world, which I think is necessary to have an environmentally equitable world, even in a post-capitalist world, luxury becomes something that is not unattainable, but widespread. Luxury becomes something that is bound up in relationship to nature and having access to nature and feeling safe and belonging in nature. Luxury is about eating with your friends. It's not about this exclusive thing that has to be bought. And so I really am appreciating this idea of thinking about these very special things and how they're very simple if we sort of transform society. Like we could really all have fresh food. That's not, that's not like crazy. We could actually. And we don't need Monsanto to help us. And we don't need Monsanto. <laughs> we, we actually don't really need any large corporations. That the film, I don't know if you guys have seen the film 2040. It came out last year um, mm -hmm. and you know, it's a cool film. But the one thing that, that really kind of like stuck with me was when they showed this vision of the future where the cities had kind of been transformed into, first of all, like people weren't really driving anymore. So it's much more about taking public transportation that was very efficient if you need to go somewhere. But also we redesigned our lives so we don't have to go places all the time, right? And like that in itself, it's a luxury. Like we just know the days where like, I don't have to go to work today. I can just step outside the door and have a coffee. Like that's luxury, right? Like the, the time to just be. And then also, so all the parking lots uh, have been transformed into big gardens and people were like growing foods in their own balconies and their rooftops were just like filled with greenery. And I'm like, wow, that could actually be the future. And it's not even that far off. It's like, it doesn't take many steps to get there. And instead of like having to ship something from like the other side of the country or like some far off place, it's like we're growing it literally next door because it's, it's this old parking lot. So it's just now full of like all this fresh food. And I think that in itself is going to solve so many issues. You know, it's going to really empower people and having a garden myself in the summertime, it's currently winter here, but like, I can't wait to step out again and just pick kale in my own garden because it's nothing as luxurious as that moment. So yeah, I totally agree with you. The final question I would kind of like just wanna, unless Robin has something else, um, ask you is because you're you're so you're such a spokesperson for empowerment and individual actions. And then every all of us kind of had those moments where you you start to remember that there are like oil companies out there that you know uh, speaks for 70% or something of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And you feel like such a drop in the bucket and, you know, who are you to make a difference? So what would you say to someone who wants to make a change and to, to remember that what they do is actually important? Everything is a ripple effect. You know, we do one thing for our communities. If hundreds of thousands of people are doing things for their communities around the world, that ripples into millions of people. And I think part of it is making some of these corporations obsolete. How do we make it so that it is easier to get what you need from your community or 150 mile radius, instead of having to go to Amazon and know that something's being shipped from China into a warehouse that's polluting, probably a Latinx community, probably the workers are mostly Latinx so that we could get it in 24 hours. Do we need anything in 24 hours besides water and air and food? We really don't. So I think part of what I hope people realize is that Everything we do is a ripple effects, a ripple effect that affects our community and communities around the world and hopefully allows us to seek out alternatives, create alternatives and participate in alternatives in a way that can transition the system or transform the system, you know, in a few years, in a few decades, in a few generations, if we're still all here, but we have to do something. And I think that's what I hope people realize is we have to do something. Um, what it is, is up to you. 
but we should do something. And, and if it feels more feasible to, to think about yourself as an individual or to think about yourself in your family unit, that's fine. Just know that, yes, there are 100 companies that cause over 70% of carbon emissions. And as a matter of fact, half of the companies on those lists have been the primary causes of carbon emissions since 1850. So actually, this is a generations long issue. And we need to find a way to make sure that we don't all have to keep supporting these companies unintentionally. And because supply chains are so opaque, we don't even know when we're supporting a company and how far that goes. And so I think um, just the little, the little things and the ripple effects are better than nothing. Even in a world where we're like, it's only a hundred companies. Can't we do something about it? We can, we can. It's a project I'm working on hopefully coming soon. But I've been thinking about that also, because I'm like, it feels so simple. If we know there's 100 companies, can't we do something specifically about that? 71% of carbon emissions? Wow. Feels like we should be able to advocate to lessen the power of these companies significantly and lessen how much they're extracting. Keep us posted on that. That sounds <laughs> awesome. I'm in. Whatever it is, I'm in. <laughs> big project, but I'm, you know, I'm, I hope that, uh, some concrete tools of what we can do can come out of it. And just trying to shed light on how so many parts of our culture and society are hidden from us because they are detrimental and violent. And so maybe if we know all of the ways that these companies are causing violence, we can do something to resist it. Mm -hmm. That feels, that feels more, intentional than just not supporting them, whatever that means. Also, I do think boycotting is important, but I, I'm really wanting to be able to give people more concrete strategies um, rather than just be like, don't support Amazon. Like, what does that really mean? You know? Yeah. Cause it's easy to just replace it with something else if those habits are in place and it, it's, it feels like, so having like a big picture of what we want the future to look like in our day-to-day -day lives and in the immediate future, we still need to be working very hard, I think, towards creating a more fair, equitable, and just world where we are helping people who have, you know, previously been denied access to, you know, resources, natural resources, to, you know, spaces to continue to fight to make sure that if like, right, it feels like in the immediate, we're, we kind of have to work within the system that we have to create more space and to equalize. I'm moving my hands around a lot for anybody who's not watching this on YouTube right now. But yeah, um, so it's kind of like, it, it sounds like what you're working on will be very helpful for people to have some concrete action of how we can actually make a difference to start to shape that better world in the immediate future, given the system that we have been born into right now, while we still have the vision of the bigger picture future with the North Star up what the world can truly look like when we live in harmony with each other and in our spaces and nature. Absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much. Well, uh, we have three rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready for those? Yes, hopefully. <laughs> also, before we dive in, uh, for anyone who's listening, where can they find you and all your incredible writing and all your work? Yes. So on Instagram at Miss Tej, M-I-S-S-T-E-J. And then at my website, TejuAdisaFarrar.com. Um, hopefully it'll be linked somewhere because I have three names and they're, <laughs> they're a little bit complex for some people. But I put almost all my writing up on my website. I also have a blog called the Black Urbanist Blog. I want to start posting more, but that's where you can find some of my writing. And, you know, I, I do work with a lot of different projects. So um, there's always, always something that I'm doing and I, I love and appreciate support and hearing from people and um, sharing resources and ideas and collaborations. So um, at Miss Tej on Instagram and my website, tejuadisafarrar.com. And we're linking that in the show notes. So they'll find you. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Number one, fill in the blank. I believe in a positive future because. I believe in a positive future because I want all humans and animals to be free and to be able to do what they want and have what they need without having to struggle and fight and do violence to others. 
Okay. Number two, what is a message that you want people to hear? I love Arundhati Roy, who's an Indian writer, and she has a longer quote, but part of it is another world is possible. And so I want the message to be that another world is possible and actually we're creating it right now. Love that. So powerful. Okay. Our final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you? I think if you are an activist or consider yourself an activist, you are automatically also an optimist because the idea is that you can make the future better. And so there is hope for the future and the hope is that it's better. I mean, I love, <laughs> I love your shirt, Robin, for better days, but um, essentially being an optimist is proactively working towards creating the future that I want now, even if I won't be there to live it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to think about this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?